The Lord be with you. Friends, welcome to this bonus episode of Suspended in the Word for this Sunday, the Epiphany of the Lord, and to relaunch this podcast for your listening in 2024. I will confess now, I am so fond and proud of this project, but it has been a losing battle at times to maintain it. And I'm not sure I've planned the best way to complete it and make it available to you as a resource. The podcast commenced in 2021 when I was a freshly ordained deacon. Bishop Michael McCarthy sent me to the parish of St. Patrick's Emerald to spend my transitional diaconate with two SVD priests in the diocese, Fathers Truk Fem and Jon Firminus. As a newly ordained minister, having just left Holy Spirit Seminary in Banyo, I was eager to crank up the missionary engines, as it were, and I didn't have too much on my plate in those first six months. So the suspended podcast was a happy use of my free time in and amongst more formal parish engagements. Why did I start the podcast? Well, knowing something about myself and wanting to keep on track with the normal rhythms of ministry and work, I knew that if I was serious about getting into the habit of preparing my Sunday homilies early, something I'm still working on, I would benefit from having an external locus to hold me accountable, not so much to the preaching itself, but to the unrushed preparation, reading widely, and really praying on the word for the given Sunday. So, at a purely personal and practical level, suspended in the word was a fancy way of obliging myself to good homiletic preparation, and it still serves that purpose. And because the podcast was not itself a homily series, like traversing Emmaus, I felt no need to keep to any certain time restriction. Instead, I could enjoy tunneling down every incidental rabbit hole that the readings of the given Sunday happened to present. But something unintentional happened. Because the podcast was a somewhat spontaneous initiative, I wasn't sure when to start it. The new year had already passed, and I didn't want to start on the back foot, but the coming Sunday was the baptism of the Lord. So, the pilot episode took on the shape of looking back to last Sunday and looking forward to the next, and thus drawing threads between the given Sundays before and behind us to nourish us throughout the week and to help us really experience the pilgrimage experience that the lectionary offers us. In fact, this is what inspired the title, Suspended in the Word, with us in the middle of the week, suspended between the two Sundays, swinging in a way from one platform to the next, and taking for our mantra throughout the week, the coming Sunday's psalm refrain. I think this was a grace. It was a happy accident that created a very interesting way of looking at the liturgy and really living liturgically. And frankly, I still don't think there is anything quite like suspended in the word for this unique reason. So you've found yourself here, and I'm happy that you are now suspended as we are in the word. Though, to be clear, there's not a soul on earth who isn't, since the word of which we speak is the expressed mind of God who thought and spoke reality as we know it into existence, all that is seen and all that is unseen, as we say in our creed. Now this is a bonus episode, only because I'd like to pick up where we left off all the way back in 2021. If the project didn't discontinue, it could have been finished by now. 
as we've arrived back where we started in the three-year Sunday cycle. That said, 2024 will not simply be another 2021. Our lives have moved and changed and are different. And the liturgy too moves and changes and is different. Back then, the first Sunday that brought Christmas tide to a close was the baptism of the Lord. This year, it is the epiphany of the Lord. We could look back to the last Sunday, the Holy Family, but since it is treated in episode one of season one, let's simply look at the readings for the epiphany in this bonus episode. And if there are obvious threads which connect back to the feasts of Christmastide, we can weave them in as we go. So, at the start of a new year, I am excited for us to be walking together once again, from Sunday to Sunday, going from strength to strength and receiving grace upon grace. Let's ask the most obvious question. What is the epiphany? Because this word is used often enough outside any religious context, people have epiphanies all the time in their projects at work, in conversations with their family and friends, and in the silences of their time alone. Oh, I had a great epiphany, they say. And then they go on to explain something that did not previously occur to them, but somehow suddenly and happily became apparent. Some important insight that may have been in front of them the whole time, though without their knowledge or appreciation. Epiphanies are liberating and exciting. Also, I suppose it's fair to say, while a deeply personal experience, there's something about the epiphany that leans towards being made public. Let's say it's a private affair that to some degree wants to be made known. A joyful secret, unbeknownst to us, has reached boiling point and is about to bubble over the edges, and who in their right mind could ignore it when it does? The mind harkens back to those words of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Listen, I am going to tell you a secret. We are not all going to die, but all of us will be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. That's a secret we want to know. The epiphany is a disclosure, the revealing of truth, and we are better off with it than without it. God knows we've been stumbling around and groping around in the dark for long enough. So what is the epiphany that the church is poised to make known once again? Perhaps it shouldn't surprise us. It is Jesus. But please don't let this elicit boredom. Even those of us who feel we know the Lord well and have journeyed in faith for some time, even we have more of the secrets of God to really see and know. And there's only one way we can come to know such things. They must be revealed to us. The epiphany must be disclosed and then broadcast far and wide. What else is the church's mission? To proclaim his presence and to serve him wherever he is found. But this doesn't necessarily answer the question we're asking. True enough that it is the church's mission to unfold the secret entrusted to her, the secret of Jesus, but that is a continual task, a constant task. It doesn't happen on Epiphany Sunday exclusively. The people of God seek to know and make known the secret of Jesus at all times and in all places. So what's the meaning of a particular day called the Epiphany, when Epiphany seems to be all we ever do? Firstly, I might say, this isn't really a fair question. It's like saying, hey, you enjoy your life every day, so why make a hoo-ha when it's your birthday? That's an arbitrary celebration. We already know you were born, 
and we celebrate that every day. Or imagine if organizations like St. Vincent de Paul said, uh, excuse me, we will no longer be reciting our mission statement at the start of our meetings because we are actually doing that all the time implicitly. So it's a vanity to recite it as part of our gatherings. No, it isn't vanity. It is the complementarity of that which is general and that which is specific, that which is intentional and that which is incidental, that which is formal and that which is casual, that which is explicit and that which is implicit. There are times to say things more loudly, strongly and insistently than others. And of course too, there are times to cool things off and ease back a little bit. Look back to our liturgy and consider the feasts that punctuate the liturgical year. Imagine someone saying, we don't need Corpus Christi Sunday. That's literally what every single mass commemorates, the body and blood of our Lord. Or if they said, Holy Trinity Sunday, please. Every prayer commences with an acknowledgement of the Blessed Trinity. Or if they said more recently regarding Word of God Sunday, what? Name a liturgy where the Word of God is not proclaimed. Therefore, since the Word of God is constantly used, having a Word of God Sunday is a waste of our time. No, no, no. Epiphany might be all we do always, but we're about to remind ourselves in a powerful way, moving from the general and incidental and perhaps casual and implicit idea into the keenly specific, intentional, formal and explicit celebration of that fact. But then more importantly, we might consider what Epiphany Sunday shows us that we might not ordinarily consider. It is not just the Epiphany and what it concerns, namely Jesus, but also curiously, it is who has the Epiphany. Frankly, it is not who we would expect, and this ought to surprise us every time this Sunday comes around. With that, let's look at the readings. See firstly the entrance antiphon, which comes from Malachi and First Chronicles. Behold, the Lord, the Mighty One has come, and kingship is in his grasp and power and dominion. This is an interesting antiphon. Let's focus on the first reference from chapter 3 of the minor prophet Malachi. There are some very striking prophecies throughout the book's four short chapters. The name Malachi simply means my messenger. Firstly, the scene is set with the chiding of a sinful Israel. What's new in the lives of the prophets? The date seems to be somewhere between 516 and 445 BCE, after the renewal of worship in the new temple, but before Nehemiah's prohibition of mixed marriage, which is a major theme treated in the book. They've come out of their exile in Babylon, but evidently unchanged. The scriptures show in Israel's own retelling how God allowed them to fall in and out of exile so as to reform them so that their hardened hearts would become supple and docile to God's presence and initiative. But the opening chapter of Malachi is one that showcases Israel's profound hypocrisy. Their moral life is poor, their religiosity a cheap vanity, and they are not interested in changing it. They're happy this way, if you could call it happiness. 
As an olive branch, it's hard to tell exactly how much of the problem is their genuine ignorance, maybe they simply don't understand, which, while frustrating, would be easy enough to forgive in principle. Sin can't be considered mortal unless parties know that what they are doing is gravely evil and they intentionally carry it out. Or whether the problem is that they have become ignorant only as a result of their stubborn pride and indifference towards God, God's people, and God's ways. And surely we have noticed this in ourselves or in others too. There might be genuine misunderstanding which disallows a person to conform to what the church may be inviting them to. And if one genuinely doesn't understand such invitations, that seems to make their non-conformity a little more understandable and forgivable. This is one reason, for example, why we have so many solemn questions in our sacramental rites. Like think of the last baptism you went to, where we asked the parents and godparents, what do you want for this child? By asking for baptism, you've promised to bring them up according to the law of the church to love God and neighbor as Christ taught us. Do you clearly understand what you are undertaking? They respond, yes, which is no small affirmation. And then the pressure is shifted to the godparents. Are you willing to support this family in their undertaking? Again, no small promise. And we ask them similar questions again later in the celebration. All to allow them to know what they're embarking on and to take it up with full liberty in all freedom. If we didn't know what our obligations were, it would be very understandable if we did not fulfill them. But since we are given so many opportunities to clarify and recommit, we're gonna have a hard time playing ignorant when we are called to account. Is it really that we didn't know? Or like Israel in the book of Malachi, did we simply not care, and quite stubbornly so? God names their hypocrisy, and they make out as if not to understand. If I am indeed father, where is the honor due to me? If I am indeed master, where is the awe due to me, says the Lord Sabaoth, to you priests who despise my name? You ask, how have we despised your name? By putting polluted food on my altar. You ask, how have we polluted you? By saying the table of the Lord deserves no respect. And so God shows how they cause such offense. In a word, it is through their poor religion. Maybe they don't fully realize it, but they are saying quite a lot by the way they carry out their religion. And they are fools to think God is pleased just because they're going through the religious motions. God says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is this not wrong? When you bring the lame and the diseased, is this not wrong? If you offer them to your governor, see if he is pleased with them or receives you graciously, says the Lord Sabaoth. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord. From your hands I find no offerings acceptable. But, and listen closely to this from chapter 1 verse 11. From farthest east to farthest west, says the Lord, my name is great among the heathens. Other translations say the pagans, the Gentiles. In essence, the foreign nations who ought not know God as Israel does. And everywhere God continues, incense and a pure gift are offered to my name since my name is great among the heathens. 
not so much amongst Israel as it should be, but among all the nations. If this isn't a prophecy of the epiphany, I don't know what is. The prophet goes on, saying that the Hebrew is cursed for knowing what a fitting sacrifice looks like, but refusing to give it. For I am a great king, says the Lord Sabaoth, and the heathens and Gentiles know it. Doesn't the mind harken back to Simeon's canticle in the temple, which we heard last Sunday? At last, O powerful master, you give leave to your servant, for I see your salvation, which you have prepared for all nations, the light to enlighten the Gentiles, and give glory to your people Israel. In chapter 3, Malachi says how, quote, those who feared the Lord and kept his name in mind would be his most prized possession, and that he would spare them in the way a man spares his own son. That has strong Christian overtones. In closing, he says, For behold, the day comes, burning like an oven. For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall shine with healing in its wings. You shall go forth leaping like calves from the stall. I don't think it's inappropriate to remember the manger around which ox and lamb gathered. And there is Jesus amongst the hay. For he really is food for us simple beasts. A companion in the deepest sense from the literal kompanem, which means bread with and for us. Whose real presence is nourishment and strength. And lastly, remembering John the Baptist, Malachi 4 verses 5 to 6 reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. The first reading this Sunday comes from Isaiah chapter 60. It opens, Arise, shine out Jerusalem, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is rising on you, though night still covers the earth and darkness the peoples. Above you the Lord now rises, and above you his glory appears. In many ways, these two opening verses capture the beauty and the difficulty of the Christian life and mission. God has definitively come to his people, weighed down by sin and death. And to be sure, reality has been permanently changed. And yet, here we are, still weighed down, still tasting the stubborn remnants of sin and the bitter sting of death. Somehow, even as we toil in the mud and see every sign of a world yet to be redeemed, we must look not so much with human eyes, but with the eyes of faith. Where is God in the everyday and in our darkest of days? His light shines, even invisibly, and his glory appears. If we are faithful and are able to glimpse and fix our gaze on this light, like the wandering magi, those around us may well see what we are seeking, and they'll see too our good sense catching hold of it, and they may imitate this seeking it themselves. It is as Isaiah said elsewhere in chapter 9 regarding when Jesus began his public ministry. Behold, a people living in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of the shadow of death, 
a light has dawned. This is the logic of the epiphany. Something privileged is rightly sought after by the masses. That which is quite private and particular tries of its own accord to become the new public norm. The nations come to your light and kings to your dawning brightness. Lift up your eyes and look round. All are assembling and coming towards you, your sons from far away and your daughters being tenderly carried. What does it do for us, pray tell, when the Jesus we know and love seems to dawn in the lives of our family members, our friends, colleagues and acquaintances, in our community and so on? What does it do for us? Not hopefully what it did for Jonah. He wanted his privileged prophecy to be rejected by the people so that they would instead meet with God's wrath, as he might have thought they deserved. No, while the Jesus secret is a privilege, we, his prophetic people, do not want to keep it to ourselves and watch the magi in our lives wander around in vain. We want them to find this light who has illumined us. Isaiah continues, At this sight, at the sight of all those around us being drawn to Christ like humble moths to the holy flame, you, that is we, will grow radiant, our hearts throbbing and full. To be sure, we, just like St. Paul mentions in Ephesians, are entrusted with the grace that is meant for those around us. We are given not only what we ourselves need, but what those around us need. This is yet another reason why religion and faith are not things to be kept to ourselves. This seems to assume that there's something about our faith and religion that's automatically oppressive or offensive. This is not true. It is mysterious. It is something revealed, which means it is not found by reason alone. It was by a revelation, St. Paul says, that I was given knowledge of the mystery through the Spirit. And yet, while reason alone is insufficient, right reason certainly prepares one for what is revealed. In a way, sharing the faith well can inadvertently show someone just how much they've not quite perceived, which might imply that they are not as right in their reasoning as they might like to think. And naturally, this seems offensive. It's embarrassing. Who wants to learn how wrong they've been the whole time? But if we can make Jesus known in charity and in meekness, with genuine and unmistakable concern for the other, the negative feeling that our hearers might feel is offence taken, not offence given. And we need not be too anxious about that. Fidelity demands that we proclaim this gospel we've received. If we know we are about to come across like clanging gongs, we might need to change our approach. We would rather sound like the gentle plucking of strings or the warm tones of the flute. This might be easier to take. I do think it is perfectly appropriate for us to calmly cast our hosannas and alleluias into the public square, petitioning and praising God within people's hearing. Not to make a vain show, of course, but simply to be free in our faith. And when we do, we can expect that there will be those 
who are moved to join the chorus, who have acquired the secret, the sublime privilege of knowing Christ Jesus, God's own life. As for the last few verses in Isaiah 60, I'd like to return to them because I think they pertain very much to the story portrayed in the gospel, how the foreign kings acted as they approached Jesus in stark contrast to the king named Herod. And furthermore, it tells us how we might fittingly exercise our own baptismal kingship when we approach Christ, our brother and the king of the universe. The gospel this Sunday is from chapter two of St. Matthew's account, one which has held pride of place among the four gospels since the second century. After Jesus had been born, Matthew tells us, at Bethlehem in Judea, during the reign of King Herod, some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. When an author opens with such historical details, it is clear that this is not some myth. The Gospels do not begin once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. They are somewhere and somewhen in a place we can still visit and during a time we do have records of. The Gospels are grounded in reality. Matthew takes great care in the construction of his account. He's telling us something real. Jesus has been born. For how long? It isn't clear. Some suggest as long as two years, which is verified by Herod's killing of all the children in Bethlehem who were two years old and under. Herod, pliant king of Rome, reigned from 37 to 4 BCE. An immediate rivalry is made known. Herod sits as king in David's hometown. See 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now Herod is an illegitimate usurper of the throne which rightly belongs to one of David's descendants. This is why Herod is perturbed to hear of this newborn king of the Jews. It is not happy news for him. It is a threat that perhaps he always knew was coming. We see his insincerity in the words he speaks to the Magi, go and find out all about the child, and when you have found him, let me know, so that I too may do him homage. His sliminess is a little like that of the Lion King's cunning villain Scar, who conspires to kill Mufasa and put the child Simba to flight, taking the kingdom for his own. And of course, Herod's fear drives him to commit the atrocity of massacring the holy innocents. Before they could even speak, they shed their blood for Christ in preemptive imitation of him. The church rightly honors them, and very greatly. Herod shows himself to be another pharaoh who sought to quash the Hebrews' uprising in Egypt by drowning the Hebrew boys. And so if Herod is a new pharaoh, with his terrible hardness of heart, Jesus, the boy who escapes, is surely prefigured in Moses, the one who would set God's people free. The Magi go as per Herod's instructions, and let's say the star likewise went out to greet them at God's instruction. The star, we hear, filled them with delight, and going into the house, they saw the child and his mother Mary. I'll name something obvious here, the star was a wonderful light, 
a kind of celestial guide caught and held their attention and swooned them with its consoling brightness. And yet, when they reached their destination, where is the star? It has served its purpose, and so in effect, it is no more. It does not matter. The star has given way to the true light. This is reminiscent of John the Baptist, who was something of a celestial light himself, crying out against the dark backdrop of the wilderness. He gathered great crowds to himself, some who devoutly followed him and even became his disciples, hanging off his words, taking deep into their bones his teaching. And yet, when, quote, the one who came after him, who was in fact before him, Jesus appeared, John decreased so that Jesus might increase. The lamp dimmed in obeisance to the glorious sun. John's prophetic light gave way to the everlasting light of the Lord Jesus. The Magi's wandering is over, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother. This is more confirmation of our former point. Wasn't Jesus born in a manger amongst animals? We often see the kings approaching that scene from chapter 1 in our nativity scenes and such. But that's not what Matthew tells us here. They went not into some underground dwelling, but through the door of a house, where the Holy Family now takes more fitting refuge. The three kings of the east went into the house, and seeing our Lord and our Lady, they fell to their knees and did him homage. This is an act of adoration, something all the nations are called to do, as we hear in Psalm 72. Adoration belongs only to God, which is why the gospel says, did him homage, as opposed to did them homage. And yet, surely they paid fitting respects to the mother of the Lord and his foster father, Joseph. They were, after all, responsible for his keeping and rearing. Surely they were the ones, too, who would take the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh on the child's behalf. Whatever happened to these gifts, I wonder? They were powerful symbols. The beloved Christmas carol, We Three Kings, explains the common meaning of the gold foreshadowing Jesus' kingship. The frankincense, a symbol of his priestly role with the incense used in worship, and the bitter ointment of myrrh, prefiguring his death embalming and burial. Some legends and loose traditions float around. One David Cottis recounts a legend where the gold was used to pay for the stable, the frankincense to perfume it, and the ointment was used then and there on the child. Reverend Dr. Clay Smith recounts legends that say the thieves crucified with Jesus had stolen the gold. Another says that Judas, made custodian of the gifts, sold them and pocketed the money. Another pious thought held by some is that the myrrh given the kings was in fact used on the crucified Christ at his burial. None of this is canonical. The four evangelists and the tradition are silent about it. Needless to say, the Magi were fulfilling scripture. In particular, Isaiah 60 verse 6 mentions kings bearing gold and incense to this living light. These Persian astronomers are literally enacting what they have read. They didn't just follow the star, 
Evidently, they're following the entire script. Who knows, maybe they were also familiar with Exodus 30, which employs myrrh in the consecration of the Levite priests and the tabernacle. These gifts are not random. They are prescribed gifts for the King of Kings. And clearly, much is being fulfilled in this humble scene, which is as strange as it is familiar due to our Christmas celebrations. The final detail Matthew presents us with this Sunday is that the Magi stayed there for at least one night, or maybe they had a nap, because they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Perhaps they had already sensed the duplicitous and violent heart in the king. Like Joseph, they were given a revelation and they acted on it, returning to their own country by a different way. This is a point worth sitting with. It isn't that the Magi came to the King of the Jews and then converted nominally to Judaism, nor, obviously, could they be considered institutionally Christian. But they came closer to the Lord, both geographically and in their hearts, than perhaps many of us have. How did this encounter change them? Because it surely must have. Who could travel? traversing field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Find the king of the universe, place the highest of gifts in his hands, and then return to their former life as if nothing happened. Something happened, and then they went home. But note these ominous words. They returned to their own country by a different way. I don't think this is only regarding the route they took. I think it is fair to assume their way of being had changed. Yes, they went home, back to their families, back to their people, but not as they previously were. Those who awaited their return were met by three different men, men who had fixed their eyes on the true and living God. If Moses was radiant after his time in prayer atop Mount Sinai, I wonder what dazzling countenances these men from the East brought home with them. The three Magi present a challenge to us, since their epiphany is not to remain their privilege, their private affair, but it is in fact for the whole world across every age. And here I return to Isaiah 60, with some paraphrasing. Arise, friends, and shine. Your light has come, and wherever you are, be sure that the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Darkness may cover the earth, and a thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to this light, and kings to the brightness of this dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come, sons from afar, daughters on the hip. Look yourselves, see and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. For the wealth on the seas will be brought, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover the land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and even myrrh, and proclaim the praise of the Lord. 
we may not have been around to follow the star to Christ's first coming in humility, but we follow now the light of faith lit in our hearts and we await his second coming in glory. He who is the new Moses, the new David, the new priest and temple, the new and everlasting light of life. The Magi rightly challenge us to bring our finest gifts, lest God say to us what was said through the prophet Malachi, I find no offerings acceptable, and our moral life and our lax religion sadden God's Holy Spirit. In one of his homilies on the Gospels, Pope St. Gregory the Great writes that there are heretics who might be willing to offer Jesus one or two of these precious gifts, but they are unable to profess the true doctrine of all three of them. For Jesus is universal king, signified by the gold. Jesus is God, professed by the frankincense. And Jesus, the God-man, truly died, professed by the myrrh. Therefore, Gregory exhorts us, offer gold and profess his universal kingship and rule, that his sovereign wisdom might shine in your life, in my life. Offer frankincense, believing that he who appeared in time is God before time ever was, that your prayer and adoration would be pleasing to him. And finally, offer him myrrh, professing that he died in mortal nature like our own, and offering to our sufferings, our dying to self, in union with him. As St. Fulgentius wrote, in him the very nature of our race becomes a true and saving sacrifice. And by the way, Fulgentius's name literally means to shine, sparkle, glitter, flash. Sounds like an epiphany to me. In Jesus, our humble flesh is made acceptable and can be offered. Since kingship is ever in the Lord's grasp, we bring all of this, even all that we are, and we encourage the nations around us to do the same. For God's name is great, even amongst the so-called heathen, the unreligious. Let us pray, God, see and be pleased with these intentions. Lead us all from the faith by which we know you now to the vision of your glory, face to face. We take for our mantra throughout this week the refrain of the Epiphany Sunday's psalm. Lord, every nation on earth will adore you. Wishing you all the peace and joy of the Epiphany. May it light our way the whole year through, and may we meet joyfully and with peace in the Eucharist this Sunday. Take care, and God bless.